Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods and practice. In this episode, we are joined by Seamus Khan. Seamus is a professor of sociology at Columbia University, where he works within the areas of cultural sociology and stratification, with a strong focus on elites. He is the author of Privilege, The Making of an Adolescent Elite at St. Paul's School, and The Practice of Research. Today we talk with Seamus about using historical data through a discussion of his research using the New York Philharmonic Archives to uncover the character of their subscribers from the 1870s to present. Thank you for joining us today, Seamus. Thanks. It's uh, great to be with you. So we're here today to talk about conducting research with larger historical data sets. If you were to introduce this type of approach to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you go about describing it? This kind of approach is a way of thinking about history where instead of thinking about history like what happened, what is a sequence of facts, instead what I'm interested in is thinking about history and uh, historical phenomenon as something where you could actually gather a, a data set about. So a data set sort of like thinking about um, a census uh, or uh, a huge amount of information about people and trying to reconstruct that um, from a period in time where uh, people really didn't think about what they were doing as constructing a data set or didn't even really have the tools of data analysis that we have today. So to get a little bit more specific, it's basically there are a bunch of people who um, engaged in some activity and we can kind of look back into the past now and construct a large-scale data set about that activity and analyze it in ways that would be sort of unimaginable to the people uh, at the time. We will use your recent research on the subscribers to the New York Philharmonic from 1842 to the present day as a way to understand how this method works. So what were your central research questions or uh, what was your guiding topic? What the project does is it looks at who's been going to the Philharmonic the New York Philharmonic, which is one of um, the nation's premier orchestras over the last 150 years. And, um, you know, to just do that without doing any kind of large-scale data analysis would mean going up with lists of people and trying to imagine what they have in common. Um, But what we're interested in doing is sort of coming up with those large lists of people and subjecting them to a kind of quantitative analysis. And the central research question here was asking ourselves, well, you know, we typically think about culture as something really important um, for class composition. So how it is that uh, the Gilded Age elites became a class different from other groups uh, really involved their cultural participation, which changed over time. And we think about culture as a kind of resource. But we don't have a lot of historical information about cultural participation. We have diaries of what people thought about culture. We have a little bit on like what was programmed at places, but we don't have a lot on what people were actually doing. And so what this data set allows me to look at is what's the role of kind of, you know, a highbrow orchestra or a kind of elite social form like classical music. What's the role of that in defining and constituting a class of elite New Yorkers over a long period of time? And how does that change? So how do elite New Yorkers change their relationship with something like classical music over time? Could you talk a little bit more about your specific methodological design for the project? Sure. The methodological design for the project uh, involved um, just gathering two very simple pieces of information initially. 
the piece of information that we had was the name and physical address of a person. So if it were me, it would be Seamus Khan, you know, uh, uh, you know, 606 West 122nd Street, New York, New York. You and see, then, you're comfortable giving your address on the uh, podcast. My office address. I actually thought about it for a okay. second. Like, <laughs> like, you can find me in my office all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, so it would be that piece of information, my name and my physical address, and then uh, seat location of concerts that I had tickets to at the Philharmonic. So if you imagine the concert hall as a kind of physical space with a bunch of seat locations, I know where you're located. And what's interesting about this, from my perspective, was that it allowed me um, and my co-authors, who are was a graduate student that I worked with and now somebody who's just started graduate school in sociology, what it allowed us to look at is residential dynamics mapped onto cultural dynamics. So there's a lot of work in sociology that looks at the dynamics of neighborhoods, right, and how the dynamics of neighborhoods change. So I could look at that because I knew where people lived over time in this data set. But then I could also look at where they, quote-unquote, lived in a concert hall. That is, the places that they chose to sit. Um, and so the question became, could I think about the relationship between residential dynamics and cultural dynamics by constructing an account of sort of place or where people were placed or located both in the city and in this physical hall? So what did you find or what were some of the core findings that have emerged? Sure. I mean, the first core finding was that this is not enough data. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, you know, so one of the things that we had to do uh, in order to do the analysis was learn a little bit more both about these people and about other people who should have been in the hall but weren't. And the idea there was that if we were going to think about um, uh, these people as elites, we couldn't just assume that they were elites. We needed to gather other secondary information that would help us confirm that. And that would also allow us to see how these people compared to other kinds of elites. So the first thing that we did was that for in the early period um, of the data, we looked to see if any of these people were listed in the social register. And the social register is a registry of basically prominent people in the city of New York. It makes up 0.1% uh, of the city overall, but it used to be referred to uh, historically as the stud book. And the idea of it as a stud book was it's where you would go to find an eligible man for a daughter of yours as you were trying to marry her off. And so gathering that piece of information allowed us to then also see where these people fit in the broader ecology. But that wasn't sufficient either because what we also wanted to know was how they compared to other elites. So then we also took a sample of the social register. So it didn't just find if you were in the social register, but we wanted to see a sample to compare you to. And finally, the advantage of this was that it came with information not just about people and their addresses, but suddenly we knew where they went to school and what social cult clubs they belonged to. We did one more bit of data gathering, um, and this was to use the census records to find out the professions of all of these people. So what were their jobs? And so um, in early censuses, one of the things that's kind of nice is that you can figure out um, what it is that somebody's working at. And then this gave us a lot of information. It gave us information about where people lived, um, what social clubs they were a part of, how they compared to other people who were in similar social clubs, and what their overall professions were. And so this was like the big data um, that we were able to analyze. Uh, now, what we found, 
So the big theory about class formation in New York in the late 19th century is a theory of consolidation. And the idea of consolidation was that over the course of the Long Gilded Age, um, the period of the sort of second big industrial revolution, uh, what elites did was they became more consolidated. They became increasingly more alike one another. And if you look at things like, you know, how many pieces are played by the New York Philharmonic, that story is absolutely true. But if you look at the data that we gathered, it actually turns out not to be true. And so that's sort of, I think, the most interesting part of the story. Okay. And how, how could you tell that it wasn't true? So the way that we were able to tell that it wasn't true was by looking at two things, really. The first was residential patterns. And what we began to see was that um, uh, elites uh, and residential patterns both in the hall and in the city. So the first thing that we observed was that people in the hall from elite backgrounds started to move closer and closer and closer to one another. So they used to sit all around the hall, and they began to move closer to one another, like closer to the balcony, basically, and to the orchestra seats, which are the like floor seats, basically. And that was evidence of consolidation. But the reason they did that was because a new group of people was emerging in the hall who were sitting in the balcony. And we didn't just see this in the hall. We also saw it in the city. So what we see in the city during this period in time is that people move up Fifth Avenue closer and closer to the Upper East Side, who are elite New Yorkers. But at the same time, starting in the 1900s and really into the 1910s, a new group of people who lives on the upper part of the Upper West Side and in Harlem began to attend concerts. And these new people, you should think Harlem, we often associate with being a black neighborhood but it wasn't at the time. Um, that really only happened after the Great Migration, basically 1920s and 30s. At the time, it was a heavily Jewish neighborhood. And so this gave us the first piece of information that maybe there was a new group who was joining the Philharmonic, which goes totally against the idea of class formation. Like the idea that culture would be class formation through new groups joining isn't really the story at the time. It's in fact that lots of people are being excluded. The second big piece of information that helped us confirm this was to look to see uh, who was in the social register and what professions people uh, were belonging to. And what we were able to show is that in the early period, the people who were in the social register and the people who weren't in the social register had the same basic professions. They were, ba they were bankers, they were merchants, they were other kinds of sort of dominant elite professions like lawyers. Starting in the later period, as the new people are moving into these new seats, what we were able to show is that those new people had fundamentally different professions. That is, they were artists and teachers and professors. They were basically people who were high, high cultural capital people without a lot of economic capital. And so this allowed us to say that the general historical story and sociological story of uh, class consolidation during the Gilded Age doesn't just happen through inclusion, uh, exclusion. Like It doesn't just happen because the elites are kicking everybody out. It also happens because there's a certain degree of inclusion of this cultural institution. And so generating a story of how and why that was happening is really some of the key things that happen that, that we, we are now trying to do with these historical data. So do you mind if we take a, a, just a little bit of a step back? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering, so when you were first designing this study, 
did you have the topic in mind first, the methodological approach, or did you have this this type of data that you were excited for just doing something with? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's kind of a funny story. We, I was basically given a data set to generate a question. Um, so uh, I think this 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 happens from time to time. Um, there, the New York Philharmonic it was looking to digitize its entire archive and. It's a huge project, and we've just gotten a massive amount of money, $10 million, to do it. But in order to do that, they needed to demonstrate that it would be in of interest to people who weren't musicologists. And so they approached me, because I have a background as a musician, to say, hey, could you look at our archive and see, is there anything that you could do as a study with it? And so um, I looked at it, and I saw that they had these subscriber roles, and um, there was somebody who sort of pointed this to me, who was the head of the Mellon Foundation at the time, who himself was a musicologist and thought this would be kind of cool to do. And so basically, I, I, you know, the data were sort of handed to me in order to demonstrate that there could be something interesting that social scientists could do with this information. And uh, as an elites guy, somebody who was interested in elites, I sort of began to puzzle through like, well, what could we know here? And in other bits of my work, I've talked about the ways in which um, we often rely upon um, self-reports and what people say, um, and that this was like something very different. It was giving me actual practice, so I didn't have to. I didn't have to look back and see like what did people say about classical music and whether or not they liked it. And I could look at like butts in seats. I could see who's actually sitting in the hall, and so that became a key part of you know like how I sort of started with the project, and then as uh, I worked with um, uh, my graduate student, this guy Fabian Economati, who's now at the LSC, and um, my research assistant, Adam Storr, who's now a graduate student at Berkeley, we began to see that there were these other questions we could begin to answer. So in many ways, I was given data, and then I went out searching for a problem with it. So you're primarily known as uh, someone with experience in ethnography. Yeah. Um, how did you choose this methodological approach, and did you play around with other ideas for how to study it? I certainly did play around with other ideas because there was a lot of other things within the um, there were a lot of other things within the the, the historical archives. So there were um, letters that had been written to the Philharmonic over the last 150 years, and so you could imagine thinking about what correspondence looks like about uh, cultural issues. And there were lots of problems that the Philharmonic faced over time. So um, some of the letters, for example, complained vigorously when the Philharmonic hired its first black violinist, um, where people wrote in and basically said, like, why is the Philharmonic dropping its standards to engage in, you know, uh, affirmative action? And so this was sort of of interest to me. Um, but it was partially that I had been having a lot of conversations with this graduate student and working um, uh, with uh, uh, one of my colleagues, Peter Bierman, at this center and becoming more and more interested in doing this kind of analysis. Um, I also have a sort of little bit of a secret life of when I was in college, I entered as a math major. And so I was, I'm not totally math phobic. And I began my training at Wisconsin, which is sort of known when I, especially when I was there as the home of quantitative stratification research. Um, I began sort of working initially with um, Eric Wright, but also a guy named Bob Hauser, who was famous for this kind of work. And so it kind of fit a little bit into a style of research I hadn't been doing in a while. And, um, you know, I'd recently been tenured and I thought it'll be fun to learn something new. Um, 
and to apply this kind of technique about what people are actually doing to not an ethnographic account, but instead a more historical and quantitative account. So you were given this this really rich, ab- abundant amount of data, uh, yeah. which is which is pretty amazing and rare. Um, how did you go about determining your sampling strategy for the actual study? So um, we didn't really have a sampling strategy because we decided to basically uh, use the population. That is to to use everybody. Um, uh, so we didn't. We, there was no. There was no like, oh, I'm just gonna, I, I'm gonna sample this. Um, and the, in terms of the sampling strategy for the, um, for the, uh, the social register, that was a little bit more of a challenge um, because one of the great problems with entering these data was that they all had to be done by hand. Um, so normally you would hope that you'd be capable of doing OCR or uh, character recognition, that a computer could read the file and actually scan it, but most of them were handwritten. And so everything had to be hand-entered. And there was a big worry in terms of sampling from the social register about um, names. So one of the great challenges with names is that names are patterned. That is, uh, even alphabetical listings of names, there are particular kinds of social backgrounds that people have given the sort of first letter of their name, the last letters of their name, the numbers of people who have that name. And so for that, there were some sort of like real puzzles as to how it was that we would be able to construct um, a sample of that. And, you know, the solution basically uh, rested on doing um, uh, like clusters and strata. So the idea of clusters and strata was to create clusters of, of similar kinds of things and then stratify within them. That is, identify different things within them so that we would have as representative a list of names as possible. Did you did you face any other barriers or did anything else go wrong? I mean, you, you talked about the unexpected challenge of uh, everything being written in hand, so that, that creates a, a time issue. Um, was there anything else that went wrong along the way? Yeah, I mean, there's so there's lots of little things that are you know that are kind of a challenge, and you have to ask like, is this really right? So you know, identifying people's professions, I'm pretty happy with what we were able to do. So for about seventy percent of the population we're able to identify their professions. And that's being able to identify people's professions in the 1880s. So to be able to do that for 70% is pretty great. It was much higher than I thought I'd be able to do. Uh, But there's still two worries about that. Um, The first worry is, well, of the 30% that we don't have, maybe those are people who are systematically missing. And so that's going to bias our results. And the basic concern there is, well, you know, of the 70% I can find, they're probably going to be people who have a bigger historical footprint. So more marginal people, I'm less likely to be able to find their profession. The second is that the 1890 census is gone. Um, it's destroyed. And um, so I had to, we have to, like, we basically have to assume that somebody's profession in 1880 or in 1900 reflects what their uh, 1890 profession would be. And it's not that likely that people change radically their professions at this period in time, but still we have to make pretty huge assumptions. Um, And so that's like a real problem with our data. Um, Finally, uh, we have data primarily on subscribers. And so what subscribers are with the Philharmonic are people who bought multiple tickets. So if you bought a single ticket, you don't actually appear in our data. 
And the problem with that is that, again, the results are going to be biased in some way, and we don't have information on about 25 to 30 percent of the people who are in the hall. And so that's another problem. And were, these are things. Were the people missing in the hall generally clustered together, or did it seem like they were spread throughout? So, it, you know, they're basically spread throughout, um, although. Uh, you could not buy a single ticket in one of the boxes because those sold out so quickly. So um, in the rest of the hall, the people are sort of, they're, they're widely spread out. But um, when, when I said earlier that somebody appeared in the data, they quote-unquote appeared as a subscriber and that they were new, it could have been that that person was there the entire time as a single ticket buyer. And what happened was they began to become a subscriber at that period in time. So it's not like a new crowd arrived. It's just a new crowd started to subscribe, but they were always there before. Now, there are little ways in which we can help head off this explanation, um, basically by looking at the age of those people and saying, no, actually, it's pretty unlikely that they were 12 years old and buying tickets to this Philharmonic. Um, so they're showing up you know, in early, early adulthood, which is exactly when you'd expect them to show up as a new person, not as an old person who's been around the entire time. And there are other ways we can look at this. Um, but still, you know, it's one of the challenges with dealing with historical data, which is just the amount of missing data that you have and the messiness of the data that you do have. And so for me, you know, the, the requirement is to really to write this up as clearly as possible in terms of those limitations. And then finally, I think most importantly, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm finishing writing the paper right now, actually, today, hopefully. Um, and uh, 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 and the, the other thing that we've done is just to review an enormous qualitative archive of information to provide some secondary support for the claims that we're making with the qualitative data. I mean, with the quantitative data, excuse mm -hmm. me. So that if I'm saying that there are lots of new people arriving at the hall... I should be able to observe that in um, the New York Times reviews of concerts. Um, if we're saying that people are moving closer and closer to one another, um, uh, we should be able to observe that when we see uh, these people. If there's people with different professions who have different cultural styles attending the concerts, it should show up a little bit. And some mm -hmm. of it does and some of it doesn't. And I think that the, you know, the, the important thing there is, um, as I'm writing this up, uh, part of it is is not just including information that absolutely confirms our story, but some information that runs against it a little bit. Um, and that, you know, it may lower the likelihood that I get published in the top journal, but it 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 gives it gives a higher likelihood that when somebody's reading it, they have the most accurate story possible to make sense of whether or not our argument is convincing. So you spoke a, a bit about this already, about your analysis of the data and some of the techniques you employed. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or, or talk about? Sure. I mean, you know, the, the analysis techniques are, you know, the, it's always funny because the, you know, analysis techniques get very, very fancy. Um, and, um, you know, the initial techniques that we use, uh, which I think I always encourage everyone, is like the very first thing you should do when, when looking at something like this is just look at a distribution or look at the simplest kinds of descriptive statistics that you can um, because they're incredibly, they one, help you really understand your data and two, um, um, they're often correct. They're not always correct, but they're often pretty accurate. And so, you know, in the final version of the paper, we're, we're describing some fairly simple descriptive statistics, but we have 
other measures um, which are kind of interesting. So one of the things that we decided to do um, was to use what's called a spatial autocorrelation. And the idea there was to ask if I picked somebody in the hall and asked, you know, look at the 25 people who are closest to them. What's the likelihood that those 25 people are the closest to them also outside of the hall? That is, they're also their 25 closest neighbors at home. And the thesis there would be that if you're seeing increasing consolidation, the spatial autocorrelation should go up. In other words, the predictive capacity of your 25 closest neighbors in the hall should be greater over time as people move closer together in a hall and closer together in the city. And we absolutely see that. But then it requires taking, you know, so that's, it's not that fancy, but it's a kind of interesting um, little methodological t technique to deploy. Mm -hmm. But then what it requires is taking one step back and in taking that step back asking, what's driving that phenomenon? And what we're able to show in terms of what's driving that phenomenon is um, that the people in the balcony seats are increasingly likely to come from different neighborhoods than the people in the box seats. The box seats are the good seats, the balcony seats are the bad seats. And so the autocorrelations are driven basically by rich people clustering and poorer people clustering. They're not poor. They're like middle-class people clustering closer together both in the hall and in the city. But, it's, but the reason the rich, rich people are clustering closer and closer together is because there's a new group that's different from them, people who I basically identify as um, high cultural capital Jews who are driving the uh, uh, economically rich people closer to one another. Um, so that the process whereby we see consolidation of the elite is in part an, an inclusionary one because as this new group gets included in this practice, they're, they are partially driving this phenomenon of um, elite consolidation. When we're teaching research methods to undergrads, we like to talk about generalizability and validity. Yeah. How did these factor into the project, especially considering what you're just talking about with a different understanding of how uh, formation of privilege and, and being elite? It's hard to answer. To, well, it's not hard to answer. There's, it's not clear that there's a ton of generalizability um, to what's happening with the Philharmonic. So, you know, I, I have like a, a kind of um, uh, bullshit out, uh, excuse my language, uh, for this. And no, that's that's uh, honest. That's what we want. It's honest. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more serious of an answer. The, the bullshit out is like, you know, I'm actually looking in general at a very, very small and rarefied group. And so the fact that I'm looking at New York elites and I have a sample of 5% of them, um, which I know a ton of information about them, and then I know the New York Philharmonic, which, as it turns out, is absolutely the most dominant institution for the elites, and it appears consistently across the pages of the New York Times, um, means that I'm actually describing that population pretty well. It probably wouldn't be generalizable to, say, um, the Boston elite, but I partially say, like, I don't care because the New York elite are actually the elite that are driving American society at this period in time because they're dominant economically, um, and it's becoming sort of the global the center of global capital. So, you know, that's my bullshit out. Like, uh, luckily, I write on elites. The other out is to sort of, um, you know, so some of the, you know, the one of the first things we do in challenging the, um, the broad story that's been told from a lot of historians and from a lot of sociologists, so sociologists like, Paul DiMaggio and historians like Sven Beckert, 
about consolidation is to demonstrate that with our own data, if we looked at the same things that they looked at, we would confirm what they find. So we show, basically, that the other people were right if you just look at programming and you don't look at people. And, um, and to me, that shows that like we're not actually studying a different kind of phenomenon, but we're studying the same phenomenon differently, and that we might want to have a slightly different angle to understanding this. Now, the real test of generalizability, I think, is not going to be so much within this study, but in terms of uh, uh, being able to generate other studies as well. And so in this instance, what um, we're beginning to look at is like, you know, uh, I'm now interested in the same phenomenon with church pews. So as it turns out, in New York over the course of the 19th century, church pews um, had costs associated with them. And insofar as they did, I can begin to look at the cost of each pew, who sits in them, and what their distribution is across the city, and basically what the role of elite religiosity is in the city of New York. And so for me, if I can deploy the same kind of technique in a different context and generate some results, I have a little bit of a firmer leg to stand on. But in this instance, it's not so much within study as it is like between studies and relying upon a broad application of these ideas to, to other contexts. Hmm. So it's the, it's the methodological orientation that's generalizable rather yes. than the finding itself. Rather than the finding itself, and I think that, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, the um, chances are that the finding will, you know, be roughly correct for a period of time and then wrong. Um, my old advisor uh, at Wisconsin, uh, my first advisor, I ended up working with a guy named Mustafa Emmerbeyer, but my first advisor... Eric Wright, I remember very distinctly someone asking like him, um, you know, do you think in 50 years people will look back and say how right you were about so many things? And his response was very interesting to me. It was like, no, that would be horrible. Um, because the only way that you remain correct about phenomenon 50 years later is if nobody bothered to take up your question. Um, in general, there should be a slow and gradual refinement of the ideas such that there are these amendments. And I think of our contribution as a slight amendment to this historical and sociological story. And I think that, you know, I'm actually quite convinced in our argument. I, I, I'm not publishing it because I think it can be published. I'm publishing it because I think it's right. Um, and I, I think that, the, you know, it, it'll be interesting because I, the, what I would hope for over the next 20 years is that other people whittle away at the explanation and they say, well, it's an okay explanation, but actually we can do a little bit better. And, you know, I think that the aim for me is to produce the most accurate account I can given the methods and understandings that I have at the time. And then the hope for me is that slowly but surely younger scholars come around and say, Khan was a little bit wrong and we can get this better. And that's like, you know, that's sort of the, the dream for the progress of an idea. So uh, another idea that's often discussed in uh, when you're first teaching research methods is the positionality of the researcher. Did this play a part when you were coming up with the research design or the question? Yeah, I mean, it did. And, it, you know, so um, I have a, like, um, past life as a musician, and I still play a little bit, um, which was how the Philharmonic knew me, and um, I was a violinist. And um, it was very interesting because my two co-authors, uh, um, uh, this guy, Adam Storer, who's a first-year graduate student at Berkeley knows very little, if anything, about classical music. And my other co-author, Fabiana Konamati, knows something, but not nearly as much. And um, it was very helpful for me, actually, to have conversations with them, because what I took 
as very obvious assumptions about how it was that the classical music world worked, I had to explain to them. I had to like walk them through. And in that process, it became clear that a lot of my classically held assumptions were actually just assumptions that needed interrogating or were hypotheses that could be affirmed or, or well, not affirmed, but that could be evaluated. And um, so one of the things that was sort of, you know, as an ethnographer, most of my work has been um, to sort of work by myself. In fact, you know, most of the empirical project I've done before have been me alone. The new one, that, uh, the new book I'm writing is me alone. But I would say that having co-authors really helped me better understand just <coughs> my own positionality and basic sets of assumptions. Another, you know, a, a classic uh, also aspect of this, which was not so much my positionality, but our assumptions, um, was that in so insofar as we gathered a lot of qualitative data as well, um, and I read through, you know, this is a very long slog of just reading through, you know, 3,000 reviews um, of the New York Philharmonic or articles on it uh, over a 50-year period. Um, I, I realized that while men typically signed up for seats, women were the drivers of the orchestra. And it wasn't until I began to read story after story after story that I realized that the kind of assumption that just because a seat was in a man's name meant that he was the one purchasing it was, you know, totally uh, uh, false. Um, and uh, I think that perhaps if I had been a woman and a researcher, that um, rather obvious insight would have come to me a little bit faster. Who was your intended audience for the for the project? So this audience, I think, you know, so I, I um, sometimes straddle between being a little bit of an academic and being a little bit of like a writer for the public. So, I, you know, I have a little bit of a gig as a op-ed writer. And, you know, this, this paper is like very academic. Um, so my audience here is really like professional sociologists. Mm -hmm. I have very little interest in writing this up. Um, for a more public audience, and the in the this I think is a key difference actually in the articles that I write and the books I write. The books that I write, I I tend to have um, a general reader in mind, so a reader who you know may be basically a college freshman or knows about as much as somebody who's entering into college as a freshman or you know roughly that kind of understanding. And um, this I think is not really that readable by a college freshman. It, it would be. Um, but I, I actually want to make um, contributions to questions that sociologists find interesting, like class formation um, and uh, cult the cultural dynamics of class formation, which are relatively um, scholastic interests. I think that there could be broader generalizability to them beyond, um, or broader interest in them beyond the audience, uh, but right now it's really an academic audience. And Fabian and I uh, may write a book from this, um, but that book would probably also be aimed at a relatively smaller audience. Yeah, and thinking back to the way that you talked about how, in some ways, it's the method that that's part of the contribution and is what's generalizable, it makes yeah. sense that that would be your audience rather than a general audience who wouldn't be as excited about that contribution. Yeah, I mean, you know, so the, the idea that you could think about techniques of spatial analysis that we've used to analyze neighborhoods and apply them to other contexts or other social spaces. Like, I just don't think a general reader is interested in that, but I think that the potential for that as being something that sociologists apply, maybe in very different ways than even our context here, like, you know, hopefully someone will pick that up and say, 
wow, this is useful in another place, or wow, this is totally wrong. Um, you know, let's fix this. But that's yeah, I think it's it's actually it's it's absolutely an academic audience in that context. Thinking back, uh, were there any particular limitations to this methodological approach that stand out? Yeah, I mean, you know, there were. I don't know if there were limitations. There were dreams that sort of died uh, in the process, which always happens. You know, the initial hope was um, just as you could think about residential choice, you could think about seat choice. And just as you could think about like a residential or even occupational career, you could think about like seat careers so that you could see eight, like people move um, and make new selections on new seats year by year or decade by decade, say. And so one of the initial big hopes of the project was to do a kind of like agent modeling choice selection. And the problem was missing data. And, um, the, you know, the data are so, uh, you know, it's the, the Philharmonic doesn't have a complete archive. Um, sometimes the archive involved them crossing out information one year to the next and so, you know, someone changes seats and they just cross out the old seat and they put the new seat in. And for the person who's running the program, that's perfectly reasonable because they know that the crossed out seat is no longer the person's seat. But for me, it becomes a huge problem because I don't actually know when, what year the person switched seats. Um, unless I do a lot of other digging and find that someone new is sitting in the old seat. And then I know that at least two people aren't sitting in that seat at the same time. But it, it meant that like a lot of the things that we dreamed about being able to do, we couldn't do. Um, and so when those things happen, the, res the, the response is sort of to, um, one, to be clear about that, and then two, to try and gather other information that's not as, it's not as ideal, it's not as good, um, but it's a, maybe a little bit more varied. And here I kind of, um, you know, when I, uh, I used to regularly teach uh, uh, research methods at Wisconsin and now at Columbia. And when I did, I always taught uh, Art Stinchcomb's Constructing Social Theories, the first chapter, all the time. And Stinchcomb has this very great point in that, in that opening chapter on constructing theory, which is funny because it's basically a methodological point. Which is that the um, the way to to develop a, a kind of reliable measure or account is by creating as as by gathering as diverse information as possible. So one of the nice things about the limitations of the methodological approach was that it drove me to other methodological approaches to gather qualitative data um, to rely on other forms of information um, in order to bolster the account. And in the long run, that actually um, uh, ended up generating a much better argument. I would say, secondly, the limitation is like this project is not possible for a single person to do. Um, I had a, a you know a non-trivially sized grant from the Mellon Foundation, and seventeen undergraduates working on data entry. You know, a, a research assistant, a graduate student. It's enormously. It was an enormously laborious project, and. Um, one of the results of which was that we've we've actually you can see all of our data we've put it all online um so it's part of like my commitment and my co-authors commitments to open data um to have other people be able to access this and evaluate it but i would say one of the limitations to this kind of large-scale historical um uh data set construction is the amount of time it takes to construct a data set where it's not at all clear what the reward is going to be um the risk is pretty high.
So how long did it take with, with all the people working on it to actually construct the data set? I think I calculated recently because I had to hand in my, like, you know, the reporting to the foundation, um, that if I had had two people working full-time for a year, it would have taken them a year to do. Um, but I had 17 people working not full-time for about nine months on, on the data entry. And then, you know, um, you know uh, I have no idea how much the... The, my, the research assistant, Adam, the graduate student, uh, Fabian, were working on it, but a lot. And I myself, you know, um, I had to read, say, you know, several thousand articles. Um, so just an enormous amount of, of labor. It's not the kind of project, you know, I'm, I'm luckily and happily tenured. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a labor of love, but it, it is, a, it is a, hot, like a very intensive process of gathering information. And that's also why I want it all to be public so that somebody else doesn't have to go through it. Um, but sometimes you take on projects like this where, you know, that you really kind of want an answer to a particular kind of question. There's no way around um, the necessity of having to do this, like, very intensive data entering. And um, you have no idea what the result will be. It could be total. It could be a total disaster. The data could be totally unreliable. And you wouldn't know that until nine months in. Where can people uh, access the data? So um, the, er, from the early period, um, uh, you can go to archives.nyphil.org. And um, you can actually, we've created this sort of cool tool where you can type in somebody's name. It'll show if they're in the data set. You can click on their name, and then it brings up the actual original historical document that you can look at to see their name and the information as we transcribed it. Um, so that's actually a tool that's not really for sociologists, but for historians who often want to go to the original source material. Um, and then the rest of it, um, because of some privacy concerns, um, there's a pretty redacted version of it, but you can also go through an IRB and contact me and I will just hand over the data to you um, once you've gone through that process. And, you know, for, if, the, if there are people who are interested not just in this, but the digitization effort of the Philharmonic, it's a pretty radical project. They're putting everything online, um, all of their business documents, all their scores, a bunch of their recordings. So it's kind of cool. You can now, um, this is me as the music geek, you can actually listen to a recording of like Leonard Bernstein conducting Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and you can follow along in the score that he used with his markings. Um, and then from that, you can click on the subscriber archive from that, um, from that season and see who had seats in that. You can look at the business documents to see how much different people were paid for it. You can look at the um, trustee minutes where they discuss the concerts. Hopefully, eventually, we'll link to reviews of the concerts. So it's a massive project of putting, on the, putting this entire archive from the music itself to the business documents to the subscriber archives online should be done. I think in five years, the Bernstein era is completely done. So and, that, and that's all through the Philharmonic site, that part. All through the Philharmonic site. Yeah. Wow. A good way to wrap this up. I'm thinking, especially since you just talked about how time intensive and potentially <laughs> overwhelming a project like this could be reflecting back. What are the main advantages? Or if you're standing in front of that undergraduate class, who just heard about this, what's the selling points that you would really push? So, I mean, one of this, you know, I, I'm, I'm someone who, generally takes on projects that require a lot of data and uh, collection. So, you know, in many ways, this project is just like an ethnography where I go and live somewhere for a year and every day is data collection, basically. Um, but one of the things that I really like about this is that I, I love 
kind of very micro level analyses where you can see basically like what one person is doing or what's sort of what's happening on the ground. And, you know, for, for people like me who love that sort of stuff, you know, this is super exciting. Like it's, to me, it's like super exciting to see like, where did the Vanderbilts sit? Like how, you know, who was sitting around them? What kinds of things were they listening to? Um, and I think that the, like, you know, I, I have a, probably a really strange response to this. Like the main advantage and selling point of this methodological approach to me is that I find it really exciting. Like I like, it's, it's not hard for me to get up and go to my office every day to do something like this because as time consuming as it is, I feel like I get to really know something that happened and I'm able to document it and provide a really clear account of what was going on in what's often a kind of cloudy past or uh, in the in the instance of my own ethnography, a kind of a cloudy institution becomes clearer. And so I think that the there's a little bit of a risk reward to this kind of um, uh, uh, data gathering, which is it's incredibly high risk and the potential is pretty high reward. And so, you know, for if somebody was starting out in their career, I don't know that I would suggest this as a kind of project. But the conditions under which I would suggest it as a project would be like, you know, does it excite you? Is it actually something where, you know, you're sitting in bed one one night and you're like, oh, I could have done this. And then you get up and you do it, um, which is actually kind of how I live my life. Um, that, to me, is the really big advantage. From a methodological standpoint and a much more classic answer to this would be you get to see what people do. Um, you get to see not what 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 basically um, is reported as like the current of the time or the sensibility of the era. You get to see people doing going about their day-to-day -day lives and doing what they're they're going to do. And for me, you know, in this sense, I'm actually kind of close to economists. And by close to economists, what I, what I mean is like I'm really interested in revealed preferences or people actually revealing what it is they want to do by doing it rather than by talking about it. And so from my perspective, a big advantage also of this kind of approach is I get to see where people choose to sit. I get to see where people choose to live. And then I get to construct some kind of narrative about what it is they're doing as they make those um, decisions along the way. I'm really glad you gave that first answer also, because I, f I f feel like that's one of the things you never see in a textbook, and people are very hesitant to say that it's important to enjoy the research you're doing, and if you dread it, then it's probably not the right methodological approach. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I am in a very, very uh, fortunate position in my job. I have, like, tenure at a great institution, so it's like, it's it's very easy for me to say this, but I absolutely like love my job. I think I'm one of the luckiest people uh, on earth because I get to sit and think and gather information for a living and write about it, and I like doing all of those things. Um, but I think that part of the reason I do is because actually I, there are other methods that sociologists use that I would hate, and I don't think they're bad methods. I just wouldn't like doing it, and so for me, like, there's something really important about finding a method that speaks to you. And it's funny because, like, this method doesn't speak to my politics, right? It doesn't speak to, like, the way in which I think politically about the world or anything like that, which is, I think, often how people make those selections. But instead, it speaks to my kind of, like, work rhythm and what I like working on and knowing and doing. And so I would encourage people to think about that, like, 
if you find that the method that you're deploying is, you know, is torturous to you, you probably shouldn't do it. Um, um, and maybe think about another way of getting at your question. That's, that's a great insight. I think it's a perfect place to end. So thank you again for joining us. That was a great yeah. conversation. Thanks so much for having me. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give methods a chance. Thank you.